Hello and welcome to Searching Inward, a podcast brought to you by Restore Small Groups. In this episode, we talk about what happens in small group. We take an inside look of how the small groups are set up with a structure of safety and care that leads to true connection and transformation. So without further ado, here is episode three, what happens in small group. Well, Sarah and Scott, thank you for sitting down again. And I have good news that we're not going to be talking about your story this time. We're actually talking about restore and specifically um, what happens in a restore small group. Because um, as I was talking previously, before we recorded, there's nothing better than a good small group and there's nothing worse than a bad small group. And I have had my own share of those equally opposite experiences. And so we're going to be talking about the structure and um, kind of how it feels to be in a small group and really answering questions because I have a feeling that when somebody finds out about you guys, they really, that's probably the first question is, okay, you guys do small groups, how? And so this episode is really aimed at kind of walking through um, the methodology, all the science and research to small groups and all that kind of wonderful stuff. So Sarah, I'll start with you. Let's first talk about the structure. So the model the peer-to-peer, the practice, um, the long-term goals, all of that. So let's start with the model of how Restore um, approaches their small group model. Yes. So yeah, our small group structure really has evolved over the years. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we have in the group structure now are things that we learned, and I'll probably say this multiple times, things that we've learned the hard way. And trying to figure out how to create a space that feels very safe, very warm, very welcoming uh, to anyone who comes in. So we really have kind of a formula. I don't like to say that, but it's a structure, boundaries in which people can come in and feel that they can settle down, take a deep breath, relax. That's not just a free-for-all of Mm. we're going to come in and now everyone just go Mm. uh, and start talking and we'll just be sitting here listening. So one of the most important things, of course, in our group is size. Mm. That's exactly why we call ourselves Restore Small Groups is because there is some sort of magical uh, chemistry of having, you know, five to ten people Mm. sitting in a room. We always have two facilitators who lead the group. Okay. So at most, we've got 12 people sitting in a room. Right. And that's a space that feels very intimate. Uh, you can be kind of close to each other, both physically in a circle, but you can also, everyone has an opportunity right. to share. So it's a space in which you don't feel like you're competing or that you have to, if you're introverted like me, sit back and let everybody else go, you really, it's a space for everyone. So we start with the group guidelines in group when we have people come in and they're literally sitting in their chairs and everyone's looking at each other. The very first thing we're going to do is establish guidelines Yeah, and talk about what are the, I don't like to say rules, but they really are kind of rules, but they're just, they're safety uh, boundaries for operating. They're there for a reason. Yes. And so we're explaining those and the facilitator's job is to keep those, Right. you know, we, we have to say we we mean if someone starts to walk over that boundary we're going to bring it back Mm. so in that sense and I think one of the biggest guidelines is that we are not judging we are not giving advice right 
we're not here to tell you how to live your life. Mm. We're here to help you process life and to give you a space in which maybe you're going to process it in a way that's new Mm. and you're going to come to some level of self-awareness and clarity just by saying it out loud that you may not have ever had before. Mm. So that's our job as leaders is to keep us focused, allow people to have that space. And then the second part of group that we always do across the board, doesn't matter what group we're doing, is the feelings check-in. And we do that after the guidelines, but the feelings check-in is an opportunity for us to do simply that. We just check in with our feelings, what's going on today, what's what's been going on this week, how do you feel? And then the real freedom of being able to talk about your feelings without explaining, without having to defend them, Just simply, this is how I feel, and for a lot of people, that's a that's a revelation yeah. to be able to just say it, and yes. nobody's going to say, "Why do you feel that way?" Right, like, and they're provided the framework even for the feelings, correct? So it's not correct. like this open ended, pick your feeling. They're they're given even guidelines on that. Correct. Yes, we have sort of a set way of checking in with that, and we it becomes what we call a, a sort of universal feelings language in group so that we all know what we mean by anger or fear or loneliness. We get into that space and it becomes, it's funny because that really becomes something that people latch onto and then will even, if you just see them casually outside of group and they'll say, hello, I'm feeling loneliness (laughs) or sadness today. You know, it becomes this sort of like connection that we all know that like, if you check in with your feelings. How rare, how rare is it that A, we're even internally allowing ourselves to say it, but then to have to to say it out loud is that next level to say, I'm feeling this. I mean, especially from a guy's perspective, that's like the most terrifying thing. I I, I don't even want to think about it. So when I say it, it's a whole nother level. So I do want to circle back to the facilitators because I know that you guys, these aren't just volunteers that raise their hand and you're like, okay, good luck. These are highly trained people. So can you talk a little about some of the training that goes into the facilitators? Yes. So again, we've learned over the years sort of how to approach people about facilitating what makes a good facilitator. (laughs) We've had our share of missteps, but uh, we are, you know, peer to peer. I know that's sort of, it sounds a little bit scientific-y to say peer to peer, but that's essentially what it is. These are not licensed counselors coming into group. Uh, These are people though, who have been through group. So that's Mm. the number one criteria is they have to have started their own journey Mm. of group life. you know, sometimes we recruit people right out of Journey to Freedom because we can just see in the yeah. group space like they are they are made. This is part of their makeup that they'll be a good facilitator. I always say picking facilitators is a science and an art very much in many ways. It's a gut feeling sure. that this person has that gift. Mm. And then you're looking for some certain criteria of like, can they hold the boundaries in group? Are they connecting with the material? Do they understand where the material is going? That kind of thing. But all of our facilitators have been through at least one group, if not multiple groups. A lot of times it's multiple groups before they become facilitators. And then they come into our training Mm. uh, to, and we teach them everything we know about facilitating. Mm. And Scott's been facilitating for 20 years and now I've been facilitating for a decade. And we teach them again I always feel like we're operating out of this place of we teach them all the mistakes we made so please don't make those yeah but also how to hold the space I mean honestly if we drive anything home 
you know, quite frequently, it's that they are there to listen, mm. actively listen to people. They are not there to be formulating a response out of their own experience necessarily. They're mm. there to be listening for that person's unique experience. And certainly they're not there to project their own advice or needs or perspective mm. onto that person's experience. And so there is this very careful and intentional way of listening and responding that we teach facilitators. And certainly the other piece that goes with that is we are not there to dictate anyone else's faith journey. Mm. And that I think is probably one of the most important things we talk about and we drive home all the time. Like someone's spiritual faith journey is their faith journey. Mm. And we're here to assist, affirm, encourage, but we are not here to tell them how that's supposed to go mm. one way or the other. And we have people come into group who are in all sorts of different places spiritually. And it's not, sometimes I think you can have this attitude like that's a problem you've got to fix, you know, yes. or if your faith is suffering or your spiritual life is suffering, I got to fix that for you. Somehow yes. I got to get you back on track, but that's really not how it works. Well, that's, a, I, I'm glad you said that because when I think back on my negative experiences, which everybody's had, whether in a small group or even a small friend group, usually where it comes, my negative experience was that I shared something vulnerable and was quickly, um, it wasn't validated and it was quickly told, oh, well, either I've been there before and this is what you need to do, or have you read this book or you should go and do this. And so, so many times people want to be vulnerable and they have been vulnerable with friends or in a small group, but it's immediately met with advice. It's that Mr. Fix it that's coming in. And I'm, I'm guilty of that myself. Um, and I think that no, it's, it's holding the space to me when you said that. That has to be the most unique thing about Restore because it's not about the, the, the person that's leading the small group has all the answers and you're there to listen to them talk and they're guiding you through this process that is intentionally trying to um, move you to a goal of what they have in mind for you. And I think that's such a beautiful model because that is embedded, that to me is what embeds the safety into the small group. Yes, I think a facilitator always has to be evaluating. If someone's sharing something and your mental reaction to it or your emotional reaction to it is, well, oh, I got to do something about that. Mm, yes. <laughs> you have to ask yourself first, yes. why? Yes. Why do I feel like I have to do anything about that? That's like, the co codependency nature of yes. some of this, right? And yes. I think that that's probably a hard part for people that's not that aren't used to sharing is they need that space. They need yes. that space to be able to say, I feel this. And someone not immediately, is that called cross-talking? I know there's a, a term for it. Uh, I think projection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where you're, right. you're like, oh, no, you know, and, right. you, and you do. You have to internally evaluate. I think that's the hard part about being a facilitator is you're constantly internally evaluating. Mm. Why am I having that response? Yeah. And then you go, but that's not my problem. Yes. That's not, that's where God comes into this process. Yes. So whatever's happening is now between this person and God. it always was between this person and God. Mm. We're just in the space where perhaps by processing it with us, having that thought or feeling accepted, now their shame around that lessens. Mm. And then they're able to move forward and say, okay, well, maybe I said it out loud. Maybe right. that's not the worst thing yes. in the world. Now yeah. everyone's. I, I had didn't fall apart and nobody judged me. Yep. Okay, let me try to move forward. Absolutely. Um, 
And it's not a count. There's not a counselor in the room that's then giving you feedback. There's just this beautiful shared space of that's okay. How many, how rare does it, we don't allow ourselves to feel our, our quote unquote negative feelings. So when you openly share, you know, to be honest with you, I'm just really sad today. And people just hold that. You're like, oh, okay. It's, it's going to be okay. So, okay, Scott, I have, I have to turn to you because she said she's been facilitating for 10 years. You've been facilitating for 20. So that is a lot of experience. So from your experience, I know you, you guys train your facilitators and you guys designed the structure for this in a very specific way. Um, but what has been your own experience in those 20 years? What have you seen that makes um, this small group model um, work and create some of that safety in it? Well, you know, the, when you hear small group, you know, a lot of what, what I hear is healing community. Mm. Um, and that, from the very beginning, my experience was that if, if you have a quality experience in a small group, it is a healing community. It has the ability. Um, Sarah and I went to Lipscomb one time and heard Dr. Kurt Thompson speak, who wrote Anatomy of the Soul. And his book was just life-changing because he's, he's a psychiatrist, but he's also a Christian. He said the greatest need any human being has is the experience of being fully known. Mm. And he said that happens best in community. Mm. And what I think is what occurs in community, if you have a good small group process, it provides what we call sacred space, mm. which Sarah's kind of alluding to. And that's in that space, I get to interact with God where I'm at. And um, the, so what we call a secure attachment is one of the most important things. When a child is born, they say they come into the world searching who's for searching for them. Mm. And then Dr. Thompson says all through our lives, we need to sustain and maintain these secure attachments. We need them forever. Well, many people did not have secure attachments in their childhood, mm. and they've suffered for that. And then they don't have them in their adult life. Small group actually can become a secure attachment mm. for people. Um, what we say is first place for many people to experience what we would call a healthy family environment. Wow. Where they're heard, they're affirmed. You know, when I think of what makes a quality facilitator, 20 years of facilitating, I would say <laughs> the, the greatest uh, skill to have is discernment. Mm. And that is how can I, and the discernment really is simple, how can I best affirm this person from where they're at. Wow. From the very first moment the group starts, we usually do groups in eight weeks, that very first night, all the way through those eight weeks, a good facilitator is listening with empathy, mm. with an empathetic heart and mind. And because everybody's turning, the first time they're really sharing their stories because they're getting more and more courage as each week goes on, the vulnerability increases. Um, it's all about intimacy. Right. Into me, you see. Mm. And this is our greatest need, I think, as a society. I'm talking about no matter where we go in the world, we see the same things as a small group. People don't have not experienced being known, and mm. they want to share their stories. And so we have this opportunity to affirm them, and the group becomes a secure attachment. Um, Richard Rohr was saying that um, he calls it divine mirroring, and they now have found what they call uh, mirror neurons, mm. that we actually, the way that God created us, we need the reflection of others. Mm. That's why in, in isolation is so deadly for us. We were created for intimacy. Mm. Thompson says our, our brains won't even work in isolation. Wow. So we were created for intimacy. You go back to Genesis, we, may, we will make man in our image. Mm. I mean, it's where Richard Rohr says we're far more relational than we want to admit. 
Mm. So we need that secure attachment of others. We need them marrying back to us, the divine in us. And we, a very simple phrase for that is we teach is universality. Mm. Uh, years ago, when I first started doing small groups, I had a psychiatrist in one of my groups. And he, and he said, man, this is so powerful. And I said, what makes small groups so powerful? And he just immediately said, universality. Wow. I go, what does that mean? He goes, when you experience it, you're not alone. Mm. You're not alone. Um, and what that, what that says for me and what I've experienced in groups is that in the heart of our groups, we try to create this sacred space where grace has its potential to transform our lives. Uh, and it has its greatest potential where it meets our truth. Mm. So when we come out of our hiding, out of our shadows, as I refer to, and we're being fully known, and it's being met with empathy. Mm. There's no, I don't think there's a greater need in the world than that right now. Mm. And social media, with all of its benefits, has a great downside. Yeah. A dark side, actually. Yeah. And it exasperates shame, which is the enemy of this whole process. Mm. I would say that's probably what we've seen over the 20 years, is that people's shame keeps them isolated, mm thwarts their expansion and their growth. And in group, they share this. I don't know how many times I've heard that over the years. This is the first time I've ever said this publicly. Oh, my gosh. And, and you know that this is a sacred opportunity. Yes. This is a divine moment yes. that I get to be present for this. And we hear stuff that is horrible. Mm. And, and you're like, how's that person live with this? Mm. And now they've shared it. Um, and uh, the narrative that they have built in their minds in their own personal paradigms of who they are and how bad they are and all this, it's just so destructive. Mm. Um, and so I've always said that shame is, gets built by every, every time we hide our story, each one brick at a time, the deeper it just goes inside me. Um, as, um, Bradshaw, as Bradshaw said, the healing and shame binds you. We're absolutely terrified, petrified of exposure. Mm -hmm. And he says, so what we believe is it's not that we made a mistake. We believe that we are a mistake. Mm -hmm. So shame becomes an identity, and it's so destructive. He refers to it as toxic shame. But he says there's only one antidote for that toxic shame, and that is exposure. Wow. The very so thing that you don't want to have happen. Is the only answer. Mm -hmm. And so... These small groups, it may seem like a small thing. It is the greatest thing, I think, that a person could ever experience in their life. I mean, I know I'm biased, but I've seen thousands and thousands of lives in these 20-some years transformed by being in a small group. And we heard Thompson say, he says, I'm a psychiatrist. You know, I do one-on-one, -on -one, but small groups are more powerful. Mm. They have an element that you don't get one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. And what it is, it's community. Mm. It's community. And what's interesting, as you were telling me that, is um, the beautiful part of what's embedded in the way that you guys have this structure is that very rarely are we vulnerable and then not receive immediate feedback. You know, you think about growing up, most of our parents, you know, even if we were uh, able, most of us weren't able to talk about it. It's like we had so much stuff swept under the rug, the rug's almost to the ceiling by, by the time you get, out of, you get out of high school. But you're saying that embedded in the safety is the non-response. I remember like, it's almost like when I went to, um, 
it's all, so two things for me. Number one, it sounds like the the lack of feedback is extremely powerful for healing. And then also, I think the fact that there are strangers in there plays a big role because it's not people you know because you can say what you want and they don't know you. So almost embedded that there are quote unquote strangers in the room almost provides more safety than ever. I mean, it's no small thing. I mean, we joke about it, but I, I finally share this part of my story that I'm so petrified mm. because what I believe is if you hear this, you're going to reject me. Mm. And nobody sprints out the room. Mm. They stay right there. Mm. And they come back next week. And they say, we're for you, we believe in you, and we'll never abandon you. Mm. I mean, that is the message of grace. Mm. And um, there's just no greater need. I was going to say what Sarah mentioned earlier, that a small group, we have curriculum, but it's not the curriculum. Right. It's not the infrastructure that God uses to change our lives. It's the relationships within the infrastructure mm. that God uses to change our lives. Mm. The, the curriculum just gives us kind of a guide to do the self-examination and become aware. But it's the feedback, it's the connection, the human connection of the others in the group. That's why we work so hard that nobody drops out mm. because it means so much to the group um, you know, where two or three are gathered. Mm. That's powerful. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, and I went, Sarah, you were mentioning one time when we were having a conversation. It's, it's like miracles. Miracles start to happen right in front of you because Truly. people have never shared this. They share it. And they're, they're, you talk about the science and the research behind the you know, um, neurons that fire together, wire together. Can you imagine this whole time, your whole life, you've been hiding this. You say it and you're accepted. Could you imagine the, the, the healing that occurs in that moment, in that very moment? Yes. Yeah. And, what I would say is that um, our groups are not informational, mm. they're formational. Mm. It's a big difference. Yeah. It's not a Bible study. <laughs> we, right. Yeah, and I'm not knocking. People, I get it. I'm no, not, I get it. But it's just the intent yes. is completely different. Mm. Our intention is to give people the space to be fully known. Mm. Yes. And I think you were saying sometimes it's easier to do that in front of a group of strangers. And I think it's funny, it's, I, I think it's got a. It's a double-edged sword right. because I think maybe part of the resistance or reluctance people might right. have to right. sign up is saying, who am I going to walk into the room and be sitting with? I have no right. I can't picture them in my mind, so mm. I can't. I, I don't know if I can get over that part. Can you give me the group before I sign up? Can you, can right. you give me the Who's candidates of like, who I'm going to be in there? Exactly. And so I understand that sort of fuzzy unknown of trying mm -hmm. to picture people that you don't have any idea who they're going to be is probably a, a big reason that people right. wait and wait and wait. And then a lot of times, you know, it's really a crisis in their life that forces them to go, okay, fine, I'll yeah. go. I'm going to go sign up now because right. I really need this. But I do think there is something very freeing, yes, about sitting in a room with people who have no sense of your past. Mm. Or I think about how difficult in my family it is to have conversations about anything and for me only to be able to get out one or two sentences mm. to be heard and say, this is how I feel, or mm. this is this is my opinion about something. And as soon as I do, it gets shut down. Mm. And so for me, it's impossible within my family of origin to mm. process the things I need to process. It's only in a room of people who don't have, we don't have that baggage together. Mm. We don't and they're, they're just meeting me as me. Mm. And I there is no history attached to that. And I think a lot of people need to come into a space like that where, in, in fact, we are seeing this person 
for how we how we're seeing them. Mm-hmm. This is exactly the themselves sitting in the chair. Uh, talking to us we have no context Mm. you know and that really actually i think is part of the reason it works yeah and everybody's shown up with courage to say i'm willing to step into this so not only are you embedded with safety for the people in the group but everyone's there hopefully with the same intent there's nobody coming in that was dragged in or whatever else it's like couples therapy or something it's like people show up with that intention to say hey i'm here and because I'm being vulnerable, embedded would be natural empathy, I would imagine, in a small group to create some safety for anybody. Um, I know, Scott, you were mentioning earlier about uh, May and some of the other influences for some of the um, uh, psychological, uh, th- some of the even the theological um, benefits of this. So we've talked about the, the how the kind of the nuts and bolts of how the group works, but I kind of want to shift as we close out the conversation to some of those spiritual elements, some of those, uh, Sarah, we've talked before about the peer-to-peer research that's starting to come out and the loneliness epidemic and all these things. And so um, let's shift the conversation a little bit into, you know, spiritually speaking, what also happens in some of these small groups for some of these individuals that may have never had some of that safety. So whoever wants to go first, I'll let you go. You want to take it, Scott? You want to take it? Spiritually, I, I think... From even to speak from my own experience, that um, that it was in small group that I found God. Mm. Um, church is uh, a different element. I could always go to church, sit yeah. in the back, never speak, never say anything to anybody, and just um, and what I would formulate through the whole church service is my own shameful feelings mm. about you know I went to an Episcopalian church, and so you would always go up for the the liturgy and take communion and I would feel so ashamed mm. to even walk down that because I looked around and said these are all good church going people oh, if man. they knew what I was struggling with all week you know and so um, but actually what they what I needed was people to know what I was struggling with yes. all week yeah. um, and so what I found in the spirituality of a small group what I found was the the inviting voice of Christ mm. um, seeking out a relationship with me. As I say, Christ met me where I was. Mm. Um, and I think that is the heart of the spirituality of a small group. Come as you are. Um, what's that one verse where Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come. Mm. You know, If you're hungry, come. You know, all are welcome. Um, and I was just thinking about that this week, Jake. Um, I keep going back and back, as I have for 20-some years, to the exchange between Jesus and the woman at the well. Mm. And... I understand it now more than ever. Um, we talk about addictions, but really the word I like is attachments. Mm. And that's anything that I'm going to to uh, control what I can't control, mm. whether it's money, achievements, it can be substances, it can be behaviors, it can, it can be just about anything. And basically it becomes our idol. That's what I, I'll be okay when yes. I have that. Well, I get that. Mm. And I'm still thirsty. Mm. And so when Jesus talks to the woman at the well, you keep going to this well trying to quench that thirst. It won't work. Mm. It won't. But if you drink of the water I give you, this living water, you will never thirst again. And I really get it that in small group, um, we come thirsty. Mm. It's, the group is like a well. We've come to the well, but this well is different. Mm. This well has that spiritual, that, that living water. Um, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen lives transformed. Um, I had a guy just in a group this past week, um, a soldier in Afghanistan, 
uh, a Marine. He, he's in the desert conflict. I mean, the guy has been and done everything. He said, I've, he said, I've stepped over dead bodies after dead bodies. Uh, and he says, I was taught not to feel. Mm, right. And uh, he said he went to therapy, and it helped him a little bit. But, but he got into a small group with us where there was other fellow human beings, and he started to talk about his story mm. and his life. And he said it's changed his life. Mm. Um, he's starting to find an answer to that thirst. Wow. And so I, that's what I really think happens in a small group. It is that well that uh, God is at the center of it, and it has the ability. Because what is it that we're thirsting for, Jake? Mm. I just want to know that I know I'm loved. Mm. That's the heart of the human condition. Mm. Mm, yes. And I think the other big question for people when they come in group is, is God, does God really care about the intimate parts of my right, life? Right. Like I've been told that God loves me, but does he, is he really, I say he, he, she, yeah. <laughs> um, really present right. in my life right. and in this moment and this, in these, in, these conversations and what I'm processing, what I'm suffering from, we tend to, I think, so often compare our suffering yep. to others in the sense of like, well, my problems are not that, not that bad mm. compared to this. I shouldn't be complaining. I shouldn't be, you know, all of this. And it, I think that's where God meets us in this space that says this, no, I see you yep. like this, your story is important because it is yours mm. and I am in it with you. And I think that's when I say these little miracles of group, that's what I see mm. is it's, it's like God's there, always there. And yet somehow being in the group space when people leave and they go home and they spend the next week kind of contemplating things, they start to see it more. Mm. They start to feel it more. They'll come back in and have these revelations and these inspirations and, these moments of comfort and do it's hard to explain that mm -hmm. because it's not it's sort of like this something is opened up in the process right and that's where i think that spiritual it's sort of a meditative pro even though we're in here talking to one another it's yeah. also kind of a meditative process yes where in a sense people start letting go and that's where i think it's not that god wasn't there it's like they're allowing god in mm -hmm. finally they're mm -hmm. a not without even fully knowing that. Yeah. They're sort of inviting God into the mm. process. Mm. And then God's like, hey, yeah. <laughs> it's good to see you. <laughs> like, yay. You've been hiding all this stuff, not only from your peers. Right. And from even from yourself, but also from me, the, the source of healing. And I think that embodied in the small group is how we should view God anyways. I mean, I know growing up for me, you mentioned this earlier, Scott, where you need to clean your life up before you're accepted. And then once you get that right, then you're accepted. So it's about the cleaning process and then getting the nod of approval versus meeting you where you are. That's a different paradigm. So it's almost like we meet by the way you've designed the small groups to have that safety and the non-judgment and the, the ability to be vulnerable. You've, you've essentially given people access to a different way to think about God as well. Right. And, and you know, we've, we've shaped paradigms mm. of how we see God, how we see ourselves, and we have then formed a narrative out of that. And I'm telling you, it's impossible for that to be transformed in isolation. Mm. Only in small group where we are sharing our stories, sharing our truth, does that have the potential to be transformed. I mean, that 
You know, Brene Brown talks a lot about hope, and she was saying in one of her books that, um, w- w- that, this, that hope can be cultivated, hope can be learned. Um, and I think that what people come into our groups for, I mean, the only reason they're joining these groups is they're hoping yes. that somehow something can help this part of their life, or that mm. otherwise they wouldn't come in here. Mm. And uh, she says, wherever you can find these groups, sprint to them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> you know, and um, I can, uh, I'm not, again, I love church, but I can go sit yeah. and hear somebody talk, and I can sing some songs, but never ever experience being known. Mm. And I can go week after week after week, year after year after year, and no one ever really know my story. Mm. And in small group, we're just, here is a divine moment mm. to, to be known. Um, I just want to say too that, that there's two qualities I think our groups have that are the greatest qualities that any human being needs right now. Mm. And that is empathy mm. and compassion. And they say about empathy, um, a person who does not do inner work is not capable of empathy. Right. And so we are all in this group doing inner work. Mm. And so we're able to share empathy. So that's the universality. When somebody shares something they struggle with and I connect to it, mm. there's this, now it's empathy and I can also experience compassion. Um, and compassion is an element that has been missing in our societies uh, around the world. Mm. And it's just, again, the destructive voice, the destructive force of shame, um, which lacks any compassion. You're bad, you didn't, you know, if people know this, they will reject you. Yeah. And so um, that's, to me, what transformation is. Transformation is when a person becomes aware that, gosh, I'm loved. Mm. Me, mm. my flawed, messed up, yes. goofy, <laughs> you know, you know, yes, and all my all, we- of, all of me, all, all my weaknesses. Yes, Richard Rohr was actually saying a week ago that God even uses, you know, the word sin, which is so mm. prevalent in, in church. God even uses sin mm. for good stuff. Mm. You know, there's nothing outside of the realm mm. of grace. That's beautiful. You know? Well, Sarah, to close out, um, for someone that's obviously um, thinking about joining a group, there's always resistance to anything like that. So um, talk a little bit about some of the common resistance things that we experience and how, uh, not yourself as speaking from an executive director, but speaking from, if you had to speak for the other group members, what are some of the common things that you've experienced in resistance? And then what are some of the things that um, help you move through that as you go through the small mm-hmm. group? I think any person, when they start thinking about starting any kind of introspective process, whether it's counseling or small group, will immediately, I think, try to talk themselves out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh Mostly, I think, for the reason that maybe they're making too big a deal mm. or maybe they really don't need it. Maybe there's maybe they can handle it just a little bit longer on their mm. own. Um, and I say that because I know I've done it. Right. I'm, you know, I, oh, I don't need to go to counseling because, you know, I'll just let, let's see if it's going to get worse. Right. You know, and of course it does. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, so I think people will sort of wait for some sort of sign. Mm. This is it. I've got to go join. Yeah. Uh, so I think that natural resistance is going to happen with everyone, no matter what. The other resistance I think is 
wondering whether when when they get into group and need to share the things they need to share, if they're going to be the only one. Mm. And I would tell everyone, no, you will be (laughs) so surprised how many people are thinking the same things you're thinking, feeling the same things you're feeling, Mm. have experienced difficult situations um, that they're afraid to share. They're ashamed to share. Um, And that is what, you know, that we jump into that quickly in group. And I think when people start to realize that we're, we're having the shared experience, then they go home and it sort of, it normalizes it for them. And that's important. Um, I think sometimes too, let's face it, financially speaking, we can prioritize all sorts of things. Um, we, almost never prioritize our self-care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we will go get our hair done. We will go buy Starbucks coffee. We yeah. will whatever. But, you know, instead of spending that money on, you know, something like this, we can yeah. find lots of excuses not to sure. do Sure. What are some of the things that immediately people, like it's resolved pretty quick within once they start yeah. the group? Um, I would say that probably m- most people within week one or two realize again that they are, they have a shared humanity. Mm. I think that's when the like the number one thing after you know week one, everyone is skeptical. I know coming in to the process, uh, and that's normal. They're right. anxious and skeptical, and like I don't know if this is going to work. And I'm waiting for you to screw it up. Right. Like I'm waiting for you to say the wrong thing to me, so I have an excuse to mm-hmm. to quit. Um, and I think by really honestly by the end of week two, if they if they've come week one and week two they will see that the process is safe and they will see that there is a connection in the room, just in the human condition mm. to each other. Mm. Um, and and that's where I think when we go back to Scott talking about the thirst, I think that's when people start to realize how much they needed it. Mm. Um, they resisted, resisted, but now they're like, oh, oh yeah, I need to be here. Mm. <laughs> and we've heard that, I think a hundred times, you know, it's like the people go, Oh yeah, I really need to be here. Mm. Um, but you know, in talking sometimes too, people will say to me, you know, trying to figure out like, is this group for me? And the, and the thing about our groups is like the groups are for everyone. And they'll say to me, you know, I'm struggling with this. Is, is this the place I come to talk about that? Mm. And I just want to say, yes, like you can throw out a million different scenarios and you're going to ask me, is this what I need to talk about in here? And I'm going to say, yes, all of it. You need Mm. to talk about all of it. (laughs) So that I think when people try to say, is this, what is this group for? And is this group for me? Mm. The answer to that is yes. Mm. Uh, Always a hundred percent. Like it does not matter what it is. Um, Which can even be a form of resistance to saying, well, that's for those kinds of people, which we're going to talk about in our next episode. But um, I, I think it's an in- interesting thing to, for, for a lot of us to say, well, that's that group's for those people. I'm, I'm not really that that type of person or whatever else it is. So right. that's really powerful. Well, guys, thank you so much for sitting down. And if you're out there and um, considering a small group, hopefully, you know, the way that we've talked about the, the, the way that it's set up and the embedded uh, safety and love that you're going to experience and um, we just would love for you to sign up and get involved so thank you guys so much and we will talk to you soon take care Restore Small Groups is a nonprofit based in Nashville, Tennessee to find out more visit us online at restoresmallgroups.org